You are listening to Move With Radiance with Stephanie Dankelson, a podcast all about redefining your relationship to exercise, food, and your body by learning how to first redefine the relationship with yourself. Are you ready to discover your inner truth, your inner radiance? Because we all deserve to feel at home in our bodies. And welcome to this week's episode of Move With Radiance. I hope you're having a wonderful week so far. I'm just going to dive right on in because I got lots to talk about <laughs> before we dive into the episode today. I So if, if you've been on my Instagram, if you've listened to any of my stories or watched any of my stories, you've seen this sort of coming up uh, this week if you're listening to the day that this episode is released. And I just wanted to bust a myth because I've been seeing a, a lot of this, or at least I've been getting questions around this and have sort of been seeing this being talked about sort of in this intuitive eating, uh, body recover, like this recovery space, right? Around, well, if I have a better relationship with my body, if I, if I remove the restrictions and the rules and the hate and the self-control and the willpower, if I remove all of that around food, then I'm just going to sit on my butt and eat donuts all day and never take care of myself ever again. I mean, that was a, that was a valid fear of mine as well. I definitely had that thought. And I want to share what my experience has looked like and what it has, I mean, I feel that this is really common with a lot of people who have sort of done this work and have come out on the other side. It's, they find that it's quite the opposite and we no longer need words like willpower, self-motivation, or these types of things, this pressure that we put on ourselves to be perfect with our diet and our exercise, because now instead of creating this disconnection and this separation from our bodies and living from our brains who we think, okay, my brain knows best. I know best. I need to do these things because I know best. (laughs) We create this, this disconnection from our body. We're no longer listening to our body because we don't trust our bodies. Now I have this clear channel of communication with my body and there's this partnership and this friendship and this like back and forth communication with, Hey, what do you need right now? Can I provide that? What do you, you know, there's, it's, it's a much more loving relationship opposed to this fearful hatred, shame filled, restriction filled, fear filled place where now I still get nutrients. I still love fruits and vegetables. I still move my body. The difference is now it comes from a fun place, a loving place, and a, a like there's a partnership there. There's a trust there. I no longer feel the need to seek external approval or, or, you know, figure out what this person's eating and how they're moving and how they're exercising. And, oh, they tell me I should eat this and I can't eat this. And so that's what I need to apply. There's no longer that external seeking for what I should be doing because I know what I should be doing (laughs) because I trust myself and I trust my body and I ask my body what she needs. There's just so much, it's so much more empowering. It's so much more freeing and there's no worth placed in the way my body looks. And so now I can just move forward in a way that my body wants to move forward with. I can take a rest day. I can eat the donut because it's, it's pleasurable. It's fun foods. Now I can see it as pleasure instead of like a good, bad thing. It's all just food and they food fills different needs throughout the day. And 
it's, I, I feel like I take care of myself better now than I did when I was coming from this place of willpower and needing to control everything and restrict and all of that kind of stuff. Because now I'm honoring my body's needs rather than shutting off that communication. So I wanted to bust that myth because I think when you do this work and you really dive deep and you form a better relationship with with your body and you learn to come from a compassionate, curious place, it just opens so much more opportunity for us to take care of ourselves even better. We get to know ourselves even better. We clearly define how it is we want to feel on a day-to-day basis. We're setting boundaries that are flexible and moldable so that we can feel the way we want to feel all the time. And there's just less shame and more curiosity and more growth. And there's no hiding the darkness, suppressing the emotions. It all works hand in hand. And there's just such a beautiful relationship that can come from doing this work and diving in and letting go of that restriction, letting go of that fight that we have constantly (laughs) with food. So I just wanted to share what it looks like for me and that it's totally possible for you. And with this work, it's you get to define what feels good to you and you get to figure out how to trust yourself and figure out the relationship that works for you rather than needing to rely on everyone else in your external world to tell you what to do. If this sounds like something you're interested in, if if you're ready to end the battle you have with food and your body and exercise, if you're ready to end the constant battle of back and forth, shameful hatred, thoughts that just don't ever seem to shut up, if you're ready to stop feeling like nothing you ever do is good enough, I want to work with you. <laughs> and I have totally redone my services page. You can, I'm opening up full-time one-to-one coaching in April. My availability opens up then. If this is something you're interested, if you know that you want to work with me, you can, I have the link in the show notes. You can check out the, my services page, www.stephanie-danglson.com slash services. I have all the details for my one-to-one coaching there. You can book a free 30-minute call with me just to figure out, you get all your questions answered, figure out if this is something you want to do, if we would be a good fit. And, or you can send me an email. <laughs> I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Get the information on, on the website. Send me an email. I would love to work with you. Let's start the conversation. I think that's all updates I have. <laughs> so let's dive into today's episode. I am fangirling a bit because Andrea Owen is someone I've been following for a very long time. She Her, her podcast was a daily ritual of mine. She introduced me to personal development in general and also really jump-started my career in this work and her recovery series, which she dives into her own sobriety and and interviews other women who have taken a road of sobriety in their life, that jump-started my own sobriety from alcohol. And it was an honor to be able to sort of bring it all full circle and have her on my podcast. In today's episode, we dive into all things perfectionism, expectations, certainty and control. Those are two big words that come up a lot with my clients. (laughs) Values work, core beliefs, again, because I love digging into them. What it looks like to process our emotions rather than numbing them and the different common types of numbing mechanisms that most of us use in order to avoid feeling 
getting comfortable with discomfort and so much more. Before I release this conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about Andrea. Andrea Owen is an author, mentor, and professional certified life coach who helps high-achieving women let go of perfectionism, control, and isolation, and choosing courage and confidence instead. She has helped thousands of women manage their inner critic to create loving connections and live their most kick-ass life. She is the proud author of How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness, which has been translated into 16 languages, as well as her book, 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, BS free wisdom to ignite your inner badass and live the life you deserve. When she's not juggling her full coaching practice or hosting retreats, Andrea is busy competing in triathlons, chasing her 11-year-old son and 9-year-old daughter, or making out with her husband, Jason. She is also a retired roller derby player, having skated under the name Veronica Vane. I so hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Andrea. Andrea, welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Stephanie. <laughs> I was telling you before, you've been such an inspiration in my own personal development journey and your um, recovery series like jumpstarted my, my sobriety. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. It's coming up on a year. That's amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. And oh, so if, I love it. if people have been listening from the beginning, they've heard your name come up. So I'm just so honored to finally talk to you and have you on my podcast. Well, thank you. I'm excited <laughs> to share with your audience. Yay. Well, Andrea, can you just start off by giving us a little bit of a background of who you are and um, the work that you do today? And we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. I mean, that's a loaded question that could go on for 45 minutes. So I'll give you the the short version. Professionally, I am a certified life coach. I've been certified for um, eight plus years now and been blogging for 11 or somewhere around there. I also am certified in the Daring Way, which is you know the science and methodology of, of Brene Brown, for those that don't know what the name of that is. And let's see what else. A long history of my own addictions, eating disorder, codependency, love addiction, healed from those. And then my drinking ramped up and pretty quickly knew what was happening. I was, I feel like I was very lucky in that sense. I didn't need to go down that path for very long to know exactly what was happening. Self-awareness can sometimes be a huge blessing. And and sometimes I go kicking and screaming and, and don't want to, I don't want to play, (laughs) but I got sober. I've been sober for seven years. And, um, I think that's kind of, I'm also a mom. I have an 11 year old son and an eight year old daughter and um, a dog who has disgusting toys that people seem to love to see on my Instagram stories. And I think that's about it for now. Awesome. Yeah, I know we could dig into so many of those things. Um, I want to focus on perfectionism today just because I know that those, that's something that I've struggled with. Absolutely. I totally was that identify, identified myself as a, as a perfectionist for so many years. And I prided myself of that for a long time. I was to ask that. Yeah. <laughs> it is a badge of honor. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It was one of those things where I was like, oh, I am a perfectionist. I'm good. Things are great. Things are perfect. And now I'm starting to realize, well, I've realized, I guess it's been a while now that that's something I'm not identifying with anymore. And so, yes, but I would love for you to just let us know a little bit about maybe how you, because I know that you have said you've been a perfectionist before. So Mm -hmm. what is your story in that area? Um, And then we can sort of dive into the details of what, how to, how to go about it and and all of that kind of stuff. I had layers. 
looking back, uh, I don't think I was born that way. I, I wasn't, I didn't grow up in a house where my parents put excessive pressure on me to get good grades or look a certain way or act a certain way. For me, it was, I feel like I was a product of our culture growing up as uh, someone who identifies as a woman. Uh, the media and our culture doesn't make it necessarily easy for us to feel good about who we are inherently, right? So I, it started with my appearance and my body. Um, just, I'm sure so many of your listeners can relate. It was, I was, I, I never really even struggled with my weight, but I was never thin enough. Um, that was part of it. And, you know, I look back at pictures of me as a teenager and you can tell I'm just hiding in the pictures and it's just, it just breaks my heart to look back on. And then from there, I mean, that's, you know, could be a whole episode in and of itself. But from there, I went back to college to finish my degree in my late twenties. And I always had this feeling of that I had to prove myself that no one ever, never really felt like people took me seriously by first impressions. They just thought, Oh, you know, she's, she's, I had, I had one person ask me, how does it feel when people look at you? as just another pretty face. This was years ago. And, and it sort of was hilarious and it was, it felt like a kick in the mouth. And I'm like, how did you know that that's what, how, how people, I perceived people felt about me. So then it became grades and I wanted to graduate with honors. I wanted to prove to everyone else that no, I'm actually smart and <laughs> intelligent and can, can do this and do it very, very well. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with striving for excellence, but it was too much own detriment. I was also newly married and having babies during that time and had a, you know, 21 unit credits of school and really hard classes. I have a degree in science. So it was, it was so much work. And what was it all for? Like, did I really need to do kill myself to do that? I didn't. And it was all to prove it, it was very much based in what will people think it was outwardly focused versus really looking at what my values are and what was truly important to me and how I live my life and living in alignment with that. It was absolutely, I was trying to live in alignment with what I thought people wanted from me, how I wanted to be perceived by others. Mm. And so you, okay, I'm going to refer to your book. So for you, those of you who don't know, Andrea just released a book last year, early last year, right? It was earlier this year. So yeah, it was January of 2018. That's right. So mm -hmm. um, it's called How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. And you talk about perfectionism in here. And one of the things that you say is perfectionism can destroy you. And so I think you were starting to allude to that a little bit as to why it was detrimental. But can we talk about that a little bit more? You mean like how I feel like it can, can destroy you? Yeah. I just feel like it's the, it will suck the soul right out of you. It will take over your life and you won't even realize that it's happening. I think that a great place to start for people, and of course I'm already like giving tools, uh, <laughs> is just to like sit down and think about where do you feel like you fall short and what do you feel like you need to do to make up for that? I think that self-awareness is one of those things that can completely change your life. And we need to really take inventory of what is going on. But, you know, to more specifically answer your question, what was the second part of it? How it can just, how you thought, why it could destroy you. Yeah, yeah. I felt like it was the second part that I, was it? I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just, forgot my own question. From a day to day, well, I just always want it because I can go off on tangents. I, from a day to day standpoint, like I always say, like what does that look like on the ground level? It's doing things like um, not starting things because you are afraid that you need more credentials or more experience or um, 
more degrees before you do it. You need to be better at it first. It is quitting before you even really start. Like you might start something a little bit and then pull way back. It's also just playing small. So what that might look like for somebody who maybe wants to start her own business, she might set... It it can go either way. You can set really low standards for yourself so that you play it safe. It's like, okay, I can do this. Therefore, because to have really high standards is way too much risk and you'll never do it. Or you have extremely high standards that you can never get to. So you are constantly beating yourself up. And typically people that have really high standards for themselves have also really high standards for other people. So we keep people away. It keeps us from connecting with other people because they are constantly failing to meet our expectations. And again, it's, it's nuanced. So we could go off on little nuances if you want. Yeah. 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 You said so many things. Um, I know. (laughs) It's so good. I'm trying to decide where we want to go first. So I don't know if we need to go into a little, I feel like people know if they're a perfectionist or not, but like, I think they do too. Yeah. So I I don't know if we need to go into like, what does it look like to be a perfectionist? Um, Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the expectations piece. Okay. Um, Because I think that that was something that was huge in my life. And it was a really big turning point when I realized, holy shit, I'm, I, I don't hold my, like the expectations I have of others is a reflection of the stuff that I'm going through. And so yeah. everything that everyone did, it was never enough. It was never enough. It was never enough. Everything was external. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the expectation piece? I know you started to a little bit. Can we yeah. break that down? I think it starts, I I think that we, well, I know we have expectations all day, every day of different things. We have expectations of our, um, of our coworkers, of our friends, of our partners. For those of you that are mothers, we have expectations of our children's, of, of, you know, the mail carrier, our kids, teachers, everyone, you have them. So I think a good place to start is to write them down. What are the expectations that you have? I think, I think a good exercise to do this in is if you are in a relationship, And even if you're not in a relationship, pull your past relationship and look at the expectations that you had of that person. I know for me, part of my recovery from this was taking a realistic look at the expectations I had of my husband. And I think that in today's day and age, we look to our partners to be our everything and they can't. (laughs) And it's not to, not to give, you know, not to let people off the hook completely or anything, but compassion and patience go a long way and watching people like give people the dignity of their own journey. I know when I started doing that, my husband and I, when we met, we were both very, very similar in our own personal growth where we were. And then I was like on the fast track and I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm doing, I could do this for a living, you know, give him a break. And I was, he was working, we were working on our marriage, but I was like, it's just not fast enough. Like I wanted him to keep up with me. And so I had to take a step back and, and realize like, okay, he is making progress. It might not be the rate that I want it to be, and that's not fair. It really, really, truly was unfair. And so again, it's, it's that balance of, it can be tricky. And I, I can't say for sure what it looks like for every person, yeah. but it's what I'm asking people to do is just take a look at what your expectations are of your partners, of the people that you're closest to in your life. Are you asking them to do things that they are incapable of doing? 
see a lot. I see this a lot of time with our parents too. We want our parents to be emotionally connected to us. We want them to take accountability and responsibility for crappy things that they did to us when we were kids. We want them to validate our feelings. Like they might not be able to do that. They might not. And then with that comes grief that we have to go through, comes forgiveness that we have to do. And sometimes that is scarier. It's scarier to either leave a relationship or set a boundary with someone or grieve the loss of what we're not going to get with them or forgive them. That sometimes is scarier and harder than actually trying to get them to do the thing that we want them to do. Holding out Like, I know that they have it in them. I know that they can be the person that I want them to be. Because to do the other thing can be devastating to realize that you might not ever get the father or the mom that you really deserve. You might not ever get from this partner what you really, really want. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. And Well, and too, I like to think something that I realized I was doing is I was expecting other people to meet my needs, but I wasn't doing that for myself you know, (laughs) I don't mean to laugh at you. No, I'm laughing because it's, it's so incredibly common and like, good for you for realizing that (laughs) it's. And then when that happened, it was like one of those, like, you know, explosions. And then I'm like, shit, what do I do now? Because I can't expect that from my boyfriend and to expect that one, like you said, you can't expect everything from them. And I'm going through the exact same thing right now where I'm like, he's not as fast as me in my journey, but giving him his face to do that. But then also at the same time, realizing like I'm feeling X, Y, and Z, I can't expect him to fix that for me. What can no, I do? it's not his responsibility. And I, what you just described, I mean, that was my entire first marriage and, you know, and like every romantic relationship I ever had. And looking back and connecting the dots, like I had very loving parents. I got pretty much all of my needs met, most of my needs met from my parents. And then so when I entered these these adult romantic relationships, I felt like, okay, that's your job. That's your job to love me no matter what and to validate me. Like I esteemed myself through my partner's eyes. And that is disastrous. (laughs) It was absolutely disastrous. So I spent the majority of my that 13-year relationship just in a rage, just so angry that he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do. So that introduces control, that introduces, you know, a whole slew of behaviors. A codependence was just huge for me because I wanted him to validate me. When when he when he was treating me well, I felt good about myself. When he was treating me poorly, you know, how the story ends. Yeah. And I just wanted to again just acknowledge what you realized because it's huge. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, and I think that that's important. And you, you, you mentioned control. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit because mm-hmm. I know that the, a lot of these things go hand in hand. Um, do. Because, and I, I think I talked about this in a previous episode where um, I so desperately wanted control and I was so desperately trying to control and manipulate people and things in my life so that I could feel secure and so that I could feel that I was like, going in the direction I wanted or get the outcome that I wanted, but it was always so difficult. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a, yes, I know that very well. (laughs) I've lived it too. A lot of your listeners have too. Yes. What, what does someone like, what is, how do I ask the question of like, how do we even get into control? Um, what does that look like in your, in your opinion, or like the people that you see coming through, how do you, how do we identify like, ah, we need to work on control? (laughs) Well, I think that 
I think it's a spectrum and I think everyone struggles with it to some degree. And we are a society that, and I, and I feel, you know, I don't know the science behind it, but I would guess that this is what our brains like. It's safety is what it is. Certainty equals safety for us. And to have uncertainty equals unsafety is unsafe. So I think, um, what it looks like again, on the ground level, micromanaging is a huge one controlling. So, and this is difficult if anyone's listening, who's a parent, this again is like that really awkward dance of how much do I control? And and I, I do it messy every single day with my own children. I get it, but it work for those of you who work, you know, it can be micromanaging projects or coworkers. It can be, you know, it's also what it looks like in your personal life is sort of having your hands in everybody's business, especially when you are ignoring what's going on in your own life. I wrote about this briefly in my first book and I see it all the time, especially people who tend to be really attracted to drama. We call them potsters in our family, like people who who kind of like pit two people against each other and will gossip about other people. Those type of people I find especially and I've done it. Like I'm not saying that I'm I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I've done it. <laughs> Looking back on it, it typically is when I would even venture to say it's always when there's something, even something similar going on in my life that I don't want to deal with. It's easier for people to feel like they're doing something and sometimes feeling like they're helping. Like, I'm just helping. Like, no, you're you're actually meddling. You're podstering. You're trying to control. And it, it makes people feel good about themselves. And yeah, it just... Um, I'm trying... I'm like looking at my book to see if there's anything else in there. Because again, I wrote this book like three years ago. That's <laughs> the beauty of traditional <laughs> publishing. It takes a really long time. But I think, again, it comes, it comes down to, to certainty. We want certainty and there's nothing wrong with that. It also just comes down to realizing when you are doing it and working on surrender and, mm-hmm. and then having trust and faith, which is something I have to work on every single day. Amen. <laughs> I surrender tattooed on my arm because I needed the reminder to actually let go. Yeah. Okay. So again, there's a few directions I want to go, but where, where, like, why do you think people want to be perfection or why do you think people turn to perfectionism and control? I know we kind of dug into this, but maybe we could go like, why, what is behind that? What's driving? I think there's two different reasons, two different main reasons I should say. Perfectionism is, is the plain and simple people are worried about what other people are going to think. They want to control how other people perceive them. That's it. Trying to control how other people perceive him. And that's why, that's why I call control its twin sister that it also, yes, we're trying to control how other people perceive us. And then that's the birthplace of control. So that means, you know, controlling, um, for me for a long time, it was controlling the size of my body. It was controlling how, uh, controlling certain situations and trying to manipulate certain situations. So I came out on top. Um, it was trying to control, uh, there's just, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss here for like really concrete examples but just trying to control how other people saw me, it could have looked like a lot of different things. Um, situations and trying to intervene with stories. And that might mean gossiping about other people to make them look worse than I did. That could be a symptom of it as well. Yeah. 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 Um, I just asked that because 
for people who maybe are struggling with this, it's like, well, what do I do instead? <laughs> you <That's> know? <laughs> well, first you have to know where you're doing it. Yeah. You know, that's, you, you can't, I use the metaphor of like a, like a dark kitchen after you had a party and you walk in and you're like trying to clean it up in the pitch black. That's nearly impossible. You're going to miss things. You're not going to know where anything goes and all of that. But so like you have to turn the lights on. So I think that this conversation would be a good start for people. Of course, my book even goes into more depth and more detail about what it might look like. And you're going to keep doing it. Like when you realize that you're doing it, you're going to keep doing it. Like I want the goal for people to be realizing it in the moment and have like that, Oh shit moment. Like I'm totally doing it right now. And then try to have compassion with yourself. Don't beat yourself up as best you can. Don't beat yourself up. Like this is the journey you have to go through in order to find a solution that works for you. The whole premise of my book is, you know, there's these 14 habits that we do pretty chronically. And by we, I mean all people, not just women. But mostly, you know, I write for women. And at the, the very last chapter, and I really struggled with making it the last chapter because I know how much people only read half of self-help books, but it's about values. You know, what's important about the way you live your life? I would bet that control is not a value of yours. Like it might be certainty. And, and you know, I might argue with you a little bit on that if I'm working with someone privately on their values. But I, I would venture to guess that the top values for people are things like honesty and integrity, courage, um, balance, harmony, like those types of things that people strive to have in their life. Control and perfection, like you can have excellence on there. Absolutely. I encourage it. You know, if that's important to you, it's, it's one of my values. But really getting clear on what's important about the way you live your life is imperative so that you can see where you're not lining up with that and where your behaviors are actually moving you away from how you want to live your life. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, do we want to go into values work a little bit more then? Sure, like, we can do that. Yeah. It kind of is like one of those things where it's like, oh, it's kind of unsexy. Isn't this something like I do at like <laughs> corporate trainings? But I, I just like give it up to values. Super important. Where do you yeah. want to well, okay. So for someone who's never really heard of value work or even mm-hmm. understands like what that means, can we, let's start there for someone who's like brand new to the whole yeah. of the values. If someone has done it, I would venture to guess it's probably at work yeah. and your values, like the company values, you know, unless it's the company that you started are probably not your values. They might be similar. Um, I hope that they're probably similar if it's a company that you're working, working at, but I would invite you to just, um, you can Google it, but it's, I would Google something like list of most common values. And because there's a site, it's Steve Pavlina. He's a really great um, kind of one of the pioneers of self-help. He has a website that has like 700 values. I'm not even kidding. Like even hygiene is on there. And I'm like, come on, who doesn't (laughs) value hygiene? Anyway, which is, you know, to narrow it down so you're not too overwhelmed. I have a list of the most common ones in my book. And I also break down what they look like because I don't give a shit what your values actually are. Like the names of them don't matter. It's kind of like naming your kid and calling it parenting. No, that's not it. That's just the name of it. I want to know like, what does it actually look like on a day-to-day basis? And that's where it gets a little trickier. I actually, it's so funny. I'm going to grab something real quick as we're talking. Um, 
I'm in a class and they, one of the things that they did was values. And I kind of did like a little bit eye roll and I'm like, Oh, whatever. But it was really good for me to, to do it again. I haven't done it in a few years. And I'm going to list to you some of this is, I, I should, I should credit the people. So this is called engage change. It's, I think that the, the teacher that I am taking the class for, um, created this, his name is Dr. T Williams. It's, um, it's an anti-oppression class that I'm taking. So he, you know, after we get our values, he asks questions like this. What does this value mean? Why is it important to you? What important life events are connected to this value? How does this value play out in your present life? Are you living in an alignment with your values? So I ask similar questions in my book. Um, you know, what is it, what does it look like on a day-to-day basis? Where have you um, gone against that particular value? So it just it gets you really thinking about what it actually is instead of what just the name of it is. Cause it sounds really great. Like I have a value around courage. It's like, good for you. You must be a good person. Well, th- you know what courage means? That means like setting boundaries with kindness and compassion. That means truly standing up for what I believe in, even in this political climate where things are in fucking crisis right now. And people are like <laughs> angry and that's scary to do that. Like that's what courage actually looks like in action for me. And so, again, I get really fired up about, uh, about this. But also, I want to say one more thing about it is that some people struggle with this because a lot of times we aren't actually living in alignment with our values. So you can call those uh, aspired values or aspirational values. Balance is a, is a common one that I see with women. You know, They want to have more balance in their life, but it's, it's not working out well. Like, Please still list it as one of your values and list it out what you want it to look like. And then the question becomes, how do you bridge the gap between where you are now and, and what this value actually looks like? What are the behaviors and actions and decisions that you need to make in order to actually live that value? This is a perfect segue to core beliefs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Ugh>. Yes. <laughs> because I think that a lot of our, so like the behaviors of perfectionism, the behaviors of control, all of those things stem from this core belief of usually for me, it was, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough, you know, all of those things. And so my actions were let's people, please let's make sure I'm perfect. Let's make sure these things so that I can like, Mm -hmm. because I had that core belief. What does it look like I guess we can talk, I've talked about this a little bit, but I just think it's so, so, so important to talk about shifting those core beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this might work with the whole values. Where do you want to be? Where do I start? So talk about core beliefs a little bit. Like, yeah, I love this question. And I think it's, it's something that's so incredibly important. And I think that in self-help, it can get a little bit trivialized. And what I mean by that is that I even hesitate to use the word shift the core belief because I think that that makes people feel like, okay, there must be some work that I need to do, some step-by-step process where I actually move out of this core belief. Mm. It's not like moving out of an apartment and into a different house. It's, it's not. It's a constant sort of like ping-ponging back and forth into the core belief. And what I would love the goal to be for people, and this is what I tell any of my clients or people in my programs, I want the gap to get shorter and shorter of how you bounce back. So for instance, if you have a core belief about something, for someone who hasn't done any of this work yet, they're just starting out, they might live in that core belief and believe it even like consciously. And they make their decisions and their thoughts and their behaviors are based on that negative core belief. Okay. So what progress looks like is then you realize what your core belief is. And for most people, it's they consciously can tell you 
like, yes, I know that I'm not a terrible person. I know that I'm a good person who is actually worthy of love and I'm, I'm lovable, but it's that, it's that kind of unexplainable feeling of not belonging, of um, fear of abandonment, of what if everyone leaves me? If anyone finds out this about me, then they won't love me anymore. They'll make fun of me. They'll reject me, et cetera, et cetera. I am kind of nerding out on this and I, I don't know enough science yet, but I truly believe... And again, please don't quote me on this. Anybody, don't, don't email me because I'm not 100% sure. But I think that it's like our old lizard brain, this old, old, old programming that we have that at one point was a safety mechanism to help us stay alive. And that's why it is so ingrained. And that's why we have such a hard time letting go of these core beliefs. Now, you know, 2018, we don't need that anymore, but it's still keeping us down. And it's still, you know, prompting addiction, especially like you add trauma into that. Mm. And it's, and it can be an uphill battle with, you know, you get to a certain age and pretty much all of us have encountered some kind of trauma. You don't, you don't get out unscathed. And so getting back to, you know, like closing this gap. So what the goal is, is that I want people to be completely conscious of their negative core beliefs so that when they, and when I work with people, like we even go down to like a physiological level. I want to know what happens to your body when you feel, when you get to this place. For me, it's like my armpits tingle, I flush, I immediately, if it's really bad, like if it's a shame spiral, I'll get tunnel vision. So I know immediately when I'm in it so that I can be consciously aware of it. Cause before I would just like fall into that rabbit hole and like you could get me out of it. And then yeah. I would go and drink and restrict calories and like all the things. But now it's like, I know I'm in it and I know what to do to get out of it. It's a whole other conversation. And then I can again, close the gap to being able to bounce back and recover from it. And I, I go on this long diatribe because I, I don't want people to think that oh, we just decide that we're worthy of love and belonging and it's amazing and, or that we, um, that we don't ever fall back in it because we do. I mean, even the, some of the smartest people I know who are my teachers and trainers and mentors still do. And it, again, it's, a, it's the recovery that I want to be fast for people. Like that's the goal. Yes, totally, 100%. Because something I've been using is I am in the process of you know, knowing that I'm worthy. And that way it feels less like a, of a huge shift because we've done this for however many years. We can't just like overnight switch that. And yeah, yeah you totally fall back into it. It's just how, how you recover from it. And I talk about this too with like binging or um, over-exercising or overeating or something. It's like, okay, I recognize that I did that. What's, what's the next step? Am I going to go sit at the gym for six hours or am I going to like, okay, this may be why it happened. I'm just going to move forward. And so, yeah, it's, it's noticing, it's that awareness piece. And yeah. I think that that piece is like you said in the beginning, awareness is the first step, I think, to everything in personal it's, development. It's really the biggest step. I mean, all of it's important, like the tools and the strategies and all of that. But it's just, it's like, if you don't know what's going on, then all of the tools and strategies don't even matter. No, you can know them and have them in your pocket and have them all written down and have your walls filled with all of the tools. And it doesn't matter if you don't know you're in it. No, uh, nope, not at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so that's what I always say. That's an amazing first step. Like 
congrats if you got to that point to be able to recognize when and you're in it. it's a hard place to sit in. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if this is even said enough, but like pause up to the people who are in that, that new place of awareness because I, I, I always want to acknowledge that with people because there can be grief there because we've gone into this place and I call it the point of no return. Like you can't go back and unsee and go back to the... Because there are times too where I'm like, was it easier for me to just like live on the surface level of my life? Like I feel like, you know, what days where I'm really feeling beat down. And then you also maybe don't have the confidence yet, or you don't have the tools yet to move forward. So you're kind of stuck in this really awkward, uncomfortable place. And I just want to commend people for being there because I have been there and it's, and there are still moments where I'm there where like something really big gets uncovered and I'm like, Holy shit, here I am again. And it's, it can be a grieving process for some. And I just invite people to just have some compassion with yourself while you're in there. Yes. This whole journey takes compassion and and a non-judgmental place because that just creates more disconnection and more craziness. So it's, yeah, hundred percent. Um, I know you like to talk about emotions. <laughs> Do <laughs> that's one of my favorite things to dig into, um, and I just, I really just feel like we're just piling on top of these things because, again, I think perfectionism and control and all these things, for me at least, came from having not having an, an awareness in my body, not having a trust in my body, and doing things from these core beliefs, and then also suppressing like crazy. So, can I would love to hear your. Um, just your thoughts on the suppression piece when it comes to emotions. Well, I'm so glad you asked this because I I think it is such an important next topic as for what we've talked about. And I think that emotions play a huge role in all of these behaviors that I talk about in the book. When we're talking about perfectionism, we're talking about control. You're typically talking to someone if they struggle with those two things who has a real hard time surrendering to their emotions and I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where we had one emotion in our house and it was happiness. And if you had any others, you went and did that in your room by yourself and come out when you're done. Because we didn't have space for that. We didn't have words for that. We didn't have patience or time for that. Um, the message was clear that emotions don't solve problems. And my parents, they absolutely did their best to love them both. Uh, they didn't have the capacity to hold space for that, which is something I'm trying to do differently as a parent. And so I say, I tell that story because it's common. And I know a lot of people listening probably felt that way too, unless you had parents who were both therapists, which I know that has its own hazards. I have a friend who both of her parents were, were therapists and now she's a therapist, but it's, um, we don't have any schooling on this. Like where is the training for emotional intelligence? And, and I love the term emotional agility, which is also a book that I have not read yet, but it, it's, it's, I call it emotional literacy. I was emotionally illiterate for the majority of my life, which spawned my addictions. I was so afraid. Of course, this is all in retrospect. I wasn't consciously thinking this at the time, but I was so afraid of my emotions because it was a control issue. I felt like if I open up Pandora's box, for instance, when I was 18, my parents announced their divorce. I was an only child and didn't even know they were having problems. It came to a huge surprise. Um, and in that, in a span of about two years or so, I, um, I had an abortion when I was a senior in high school. My parents announced their divorce. My dad went to rehab, which I didn't even know he was an alcoholic. And then I was date raped. So all of those things, you know, this was, I was still pretty young. All of those things sort of like piled on. And that was really the beginning of my unraveling. I did not have the words 
to express even how painful that was for me. I internalized everything and just decided I have to soldier through this. Like I'm a strong woman. And of course, then I was praised for being so strong. Mm-hmm. And just soldiered on. And you know that's why they call it baggage. We pack it away and pack it away and we carry it and carry it. And I was carrying it into my relationships. I was carrying it into my friendships with women. I was carrying it every single day. And again, unconsciously, I did not trust myself enough to actually feel those emotions. I was very unhealthy about it. So when I would break down, it, like you did not even want to be within 50 feet. It was... Uh, I would go into these rages and my boyfriend who became my first husband was typically the person who got, who received the shrapnel from that or my best friend at the time. And um, it was just extremely unhealthy. I took it out on the treadmill. I took it out on my body. I, um, I just, I wasn't well. Do it very kindly, but it wasn't really until I got sober from alcohol and I faced my first really hard life thing. And I think it was my son was six at the time, and we were going through. He was being diagnosed with autism, and it was extremely difficult and emotional. And it was the very first time I had I had gone through anything challenging, sober, totally sober. I wasn't restricting calories. I wasn't over-exercising. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't um, sleeping around. Like it was, it was, not, it was nothing. And it was, it, I think it sucked so bad because I was scared to walk through it. It was this fire that I was walking through and I thought it would destroy me. I thought it would kill me. Turns out it didn't. Turns out this is what we're made for. This is what we are made for. And my friend, Amy Smith showed me this perspective that really, truly changed my life. And she said, what if your emotions are just your body's way of processing what's going on? Like we don't look at sneezing. Like we look at emotions. We don't look at coughing or farting or burping, like, but they're all like our body's way of just releasing things of just, you know, when I've had a baby, like I know what happens, like your uterus just like knows what to do. And it's the same thing with emotions. Like my body knows what to do. And it really, it really changed everything for me. And now I just, I, I, I you know, I'm not hundred percent. Like I still don't want to totally break down in front of everybody. But I mean, there was a time where I was terrified. I, I would, I may have rather died than break down in front of a group of people that I didn't trust. I looked at that like, that was like the, the, the just it, the ultimate of vulnerability. Um, so it was tough, but I made it. And I think that the bottom line of my very long um, tangent here is that it requires trusting yourself enough that your body knows what to do and that you are going to be able to walk through the fire. Like you are fire resistant. Like it's going to be okay. Is it going to be really painful? Yes, but you were made for this. You were absolutely 100% made for this. You're going to make it. Mm, yes. So I, I talk about this too. I've actually used that same analogy with how your body knows what to do with, um, like food and hunger cues and all of this kind of stuff. Like your body is so freaking smart. It's like, it knows how to have part of ourselves. Yeah. And we, we think we know best. And so we just like, I don't have time. I don't have time. Not dealing with that. I'm not dealing with that. I went through the exact, like not the exact same, but like very similar patterns with, um, with 
eating, you know, being addicted to my body and, and, and making myself smaller and exercising. And then my shift turned to alcohol too, right after I graduated college. And, you know, I was drinking alone and I was drinking a lot of wine by myself and Mm -hmm. was just going through one of the toughest times in transitioning from school to a full-time job, living by myself in a new state, all of that kind of stuff. And that was when I realized like, oh shit, alcohol (laughs) is another way for me to just shove it down even farther. Yep. And so the same thing I was, I was playing with, with giving up alcohol and, um, lost my job. And that was one of the hardest things that I've gone through and I was doing it sober. And I was like, how do, what is happening to my body and what is happening? And I'm feeling all of these things. But I think when you haven't felt the emotions, really, if you've been a suppressor your whole life and these things come up, it is really scary. And you think that like a tidal wave over me. Yeah. You're like, mm-hmm. I can't do this. I can't do this. But just like you said, like our bodies were designed to process these things. Yeah. It's like if we can process joy, we can also process grief. Um, grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I've heard you talk about anger before and I want to dig into that because I've been exploring anger as well. Oh, um, and it's been so amazing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so, so, so good. Um, but I would love to hear your thoughts on anger and especially for women. Yeah. Especially for women. I find this, I find this topic so fascinating because I've never been a stranger to anger and I've never, Anger is the one, well, anger is a secondary emotion and it's, it's typically the one that's the most accessible to us. And if we really dig deep and I think with a therapist, this can be a great thing to do. There's, I would say like 95% of the time, there's something underneath the anger. Sometimes it's, you know, one of our values is being stepped on. Somebody's pissing us off. If someone's pissing us off then there is a value that's being stepped on, look into that. Um, a boundary has been crossed and we might be we might be hurt we might be frustrated we might be disappointed we might be betrayed but there's like a host of things underneath that anger which i want to say that first and foremost because it's typically not just anger there's more to it it has like it has like children <laughs> anger the mama <laughs> and um you know i would again but i think that i didn't know how to process any of it so i would just like choose anger and and it was out and i think also because of my personality i just um i hate to use this term but because I, I don't think that they should be labeled, but I have a lot of masculine tendencies and I spent a long time feeling like those were wrong, you know, as a woman. And now I'm just like, fuck it. You know, yeah, this is yeah. how I am. Where's my sword? <laughs> and um, so I think that, I mean, even rage is one where I've pretty much never been afraid of it. So it's fascinating to me that for so many women, they struggle with it. And I think it's, it's because of a couple of things. Your family of origin probably has something to do with it. Sometimes people saw a parent who didn't have good emotional boundaries. So they either saw a lot of anger or rage that was never talked about or there there was abuse involved. And so like your reasons for having struggles with anger are completely valid. I, I want to say that first and foremost. And like no one's wrong for the struggle with it. And I think also whether you saw that or not, culturally, it's not that acceptable for women to be angry. And so we, um, you know, it's not ladylike and it's just stereotypically not accepted. So I think that's another reason that we struggle with it and we, we resist it. But I think that 
journaling. Um, I had somebody that came to one of my retreats and she told me about this thing that she does and she had a name for it. Now I can't remember what it is, but she takes a, like a journal and she'll, she'll write and then go back on top of it and write again and just keep going back on top of her words. So it becomes something that's unreadable for privacy reasons. And it just, you know, you can press really hard with your pen and I am all for just purging what needs to be purged in terms of words and feelings. And if you need to do a punching bag or anything like that, but, but I, again, I, I always have to like remind myself, okay, like not everybody is as okay with this as you are, Andrea. So <laughs> I think small baby steps can be really helpful and, and start with just challenging the belief. Like what beliefs do you have around anger? What, what is it that it's unladylike, that you can't control it, that you even need to control it? Like, what are your beliefs and challenge those first? Mm, yes. No, I love that. I, so something I've been experimenting with is, um, so, so something that would always happen to me is my anger would turn into aggression in, in the form of yelling at somebody else. Um, typically my boyfriend, bless his heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and now I'm learning, I can still have, I'm allowed to be angry because I would always feel shame after that. Mm-hmm. There would be a lot of shame around feeling, you know, expressing the yeah. anger. And now I'm realizing it's okay to have this emotion. It's okay that it's here. I'm just like needing to find a different way to express it. So it's not towards somebody else. Exactly. So I've been screaming into pillows or in my, <laughs> in my car. Oh yeah. I, I've done that before. Just yell profanity. <laughs> Yes. I think that is so therapeutic and so helpful. To me, that is honoring That is honoring your body. Again, your body knows what to do. It wants to get it out. It needs to get it out. Just listen. Yeah. And it's amazing. Like what happens when you, it's just energy. It's just energy in your body that needs to be released. Mm-hmm, exactly. You're like, oh, okay. I can like think about this now in a way that like is, is it's like, oh, this makes sense. I'm not so angry about it's healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I have kind of a final question, but I just want to hear your perspective on surrender. And this is a, this might be a big, heavy, loaded question, but a lot of my women don't trust themselves. They don't know how to like trust their like surrender into that. Like trust is a really big thing. So what what is a good first step in your mind or how do you help someone to begin to trust themselves to just surrender to the process? We can start in a few different places, but the first thing that came to me, and I always try to trust my intuition on these answers for people's audiences is to get clear on what you are making up. It means to surrender because you haven't done it for a reason. There's a reason that you are resisting. So what are you afraid of might happen if you do surrender? And start there because sometimes like those beliefs are circling around in your head unconsciously. So get out a piece of paper and write down, what am I afraid of might happen if I surrender? And then you might even need to back up and ask yourself the question like, what do I, what does surrender mean to me? Because I think it can be defined differently for every person. But and it typically is like the things that we need to work on. So what does surrender mean to you? Like specifically, what are the behaviors? And what are you making up might happen if you do that? Where are you afraid? Because my guess is that you're afraid of it. And then that way you can just start to challenge those beliefs and working with a coach or a therapist or even like a really great 
open-minded friend where you can do this exercise together just to challenge your those those assumptions and just ask yourself the question you know is that really true and um yeah i'm gonna stop there so that's that's a big start yeah no i think that that's great it's you know there's this whole thing with i think coming back to if i let myself do the things I haven't been letting myself do, like feel the emotions or take, you know, evaluate my core beliefs or do all of these things that like something is going to happen. Or, you know, I think there's a lot of fear around that. So yeah, I think dissecting where the fears are coming from and just really learning how to get back into our bodies. And that's just a process. (laughs) Yeah. What I guess will probably come up for a lot of people, like at the end of the day, the main answer is if I surrender or even if I think about surrender or plan on surrendering, I might have to change my life. Mm. And with that comes, I mean, this is like massive exiting of comfort zone that might come letting go of relationships, breaking up with someone, setting a boundary with a parent, quitting a job, um, or having a hard conversation at work. Uh, letting go of behaviors that you've been holding on to, like over exercising or or you know dieting. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, but it's like those types of things that we've that we've we get comfortable with discomfort. Somewhere along the way, we do, and so to walk away from that, it's like it, logically we can look at and go like, I know that this isn't serving me anymore, but still, it has become my security blanket. It's become my identity. Who am I without this behavior? Who am I? I had to face that when I got sober. Who am I as a non-drinker? Like yeah. that scared the shit out of me. I don't even know how to live my life without alcohol. And it wasn't just so much the act of drinking and the booze itself. It was my life. You know, it's like all the mom night, the mom's night out and the Christmas parties and the Tuesday night, you know, making dinner with my bottle of wine and like all of these things that... I was afraid, I was afraid to change my life, to, to walk away from this, this person, even though I knew that what was over there where I wanted to go was in service of my best life. That is still scary. So don't beat yourself up if you're stuck in that place of limbo of going like, why the fuck can't I change my life when I know that over there is what's serving me? I see that all the time. And it's like, you have to go through the process. Like again, give yourself the dignity of going through the process. You have to get to that point where the pain of changing is just a little bit less than the pain of staying the same. I call it the tipping point. And it's like, that's going to look different for every single person. You know, I can encourage you all you want. I used to be a personal trainer. And it's like, I got to the point where I finally was like, I can't want it more than my clients. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's the same with this job. Like, I can't want it more than them. And you have to give people the dignity of their own process. And it is, trust me, trust me, it's all in service of you. I was going to bring up, that was one of my favorite things that you've said was, you know, is, the, is it scarier to stay the same or is it scarier to change? And if it's scarier to stay the same more than it is to change, then maybe that's the direction that's that you're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I totally agree. All of this is just baby steps, one step at a time. And it starts with that awareness. And I think once we start there, then the other pieces can fall into place and it's all about compassion and it's, yeah, it's worth it. (laughs) And I get that it can be, that can be hard. You know what you just said, because if you're anything like me, like you just like, when I get stuff done, like, give me a list, I will do it. Let's do this. Okay. We have steps, like, let's get it. And then when it comes to personal development, I think the universe was laughing when it handed me this career, but, uh, it's, 
like patience is not one of my virtues and it's something that I have had to learn the hard way, but yeah, it's, it's a work in progress. Well, and you like, I think we try and make personal development our, our business or our pro like it's, it's progress is not our business in this sense. It's, it's, or what is it like the end goal? Like we can't, I, we're never going to reach like an end goal of personal development. And so just stop trying now <laughs> and your body will accept and, and change when it's ready. So just yeah. be patient. And I know that that's hard. It's easier said than done, but easier said than done, but all of this work is easier said than done. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Life yeah. is easier said than done. <laughs> it's <a> true story. <laughs> um, well, Andrea, is there anything else that you want to say before we end our time together? I feel like I've given people enough food for thought. Um, no, but if I, I love engaging people on Instagram. So if people want to go, I'm at the Your Kick-Ass Life handle. The handle, I should say, Your Kick-Ass Life. Come find me. Come say hi. Yeah. Can't wait to connect with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thanks everyone for listening. And we will all chat soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so, so much for listening and for being here with me. If you want more resources, pop on over to www.stephanie-dankelson.com. And until next time, stay radiant.